So the tour portions today are called Vaikra and Sav. And they're the first two Torah portions in the book of Leviticus. As we came to the end of the book of Exodus, we saw how the tabernacle was constructed. Um, and we looked a little bit at the sacrifices that are offered there. And that's what's covered in these two Torah portions. In Vaikra, the sacrifices that are asked of the people are covered. And then in Sav, how the priests are to offer those sacrifices is covered. Um, the last time I did Torah portion Vaikra, it ended up being like a five hour long Torah portion. I went into in depth into all of the things that are brought up. And this time I've gone about it a little bit differently. Um, what I think it's ended up as being, not that I designed it to be like this um, originally, but as a video that would be good for somebody who knows nothing about this subject at all, and a video that would be good for people that know this stuff in depth. So it would be a video, hopefully when it's done, that I would have enjoyed watching when I first came to Torah and a video that I would enjoy watching um, now. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at the sacrifices, we're gonna look at um, the spiritual sacrifices they correlate with. And when we're looking at that, we'll look maybe at some things that we have not looked at before about the spiritual sacrifices. Um, and then ultimately we'll look at the sacrifices as they pertain to Yeshua in the heavenly tabernacle. So in the world as it is, I find a lot of people when they, when they write emails, they mention this, but that when they're set apart by the word, they can feel very lonely people who are without fellowship. We're quite blessed here in that we have each other. Um, but there are a lot of people who are just on their own in the world trying to walk out the word as they discover it uh, to be and what it requires of them. Um, and so people can feel really quite lonely. And the beauty of these sacrifices is that all of them are designed to do one thing. Multiple things, but they're all designed to do this one thing. All of them help us to draw near to God. Okay, so if you're alone in the world and you don't have people fellowship around, then it's important for us to be able to draw near to the creator himself. But the creator, of course, is holy and he's set apart from the world. He's inherently different from all of us. But the sacrifices give us a way to draw close to him and that's what those sacrifices were designed for um, in the earthly tabernacle. So you can imagine in the earthly tabernacle, it would have felt more like you were drawing close to the creator. If the creator actually lived in a big tent in the middle of all of your tents and you were moving around and the creator was right there, then you can appreciate that bringing something to him, to offer to him, would feel like drawing close to him. And we don't have a physical temple right now. We don't have a tent 
We're not traveling around with the Creator in our midst. So maybe it's something that we can't relate to as clearly, the idea of drawing close to the Creator. But we can all offer spiritual sacrifices to the Creator. And through that, we draw close to Him. And as we draw close to Him, He draws close to us. But we'll get a better idea about all of that as we go on. So the Torah portion starts and says, And Yehovah called to Moshe. He karad to Moshe. Actually, what the Hebrew says is, Vayikra. That's the name of the Torah portion. And he karad. The translators here have put Yehovah in because that's the one um, that's being referred to. So Yehovah karad. He called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, so this carries on directly from what we were reading in the book of Exodus. There's no pause there. He just now goes on to um, give the sacrifices that are to be offered now that the tabernacle is erected. Verse two says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to Yehovah, you bring your offering of the livestock of the herd or of the flock. So in the English, again, the translators have given us their interpretation of what is being said here. But if we were to read this in the Hebrew, we would see something different. Okay, so this is blue letter Bible. We've got all of the English words here and then the corresponding Hebrew words here. When people are using blue letter Bible, the Hebrew words that are listed are not the words in the form in which they appear. They might be modified slightly. The verb might be put in, say, the second person, past tense or something like that. So those are the, the root words. That's how they would appear before they're modified. And then we have the Hebrew up here at the top if we wanted to find how those words actually appear. But you'll see when it says here, if any man of you bring, and the word for uh, bring is karav, and then an offering, and the word there is karban, okay? Here we've got the word karav. It means to come near to, approach, enter into, to draw near. Okay, draw near is a very good translation in this context. But it's saying when you draw near with your offering, so they were actually coming to the door of the tent of meeting with their offering to where Yehovah was living on the earth. And this is the, the verb that they're described as doing when they, they draw near with their offering. The word for offering is karban. Okay, it means, you see here, offering ablation doesn't really mean that. You can see here the root word is karav, the word that we just looked at that means draw near. And the way the Hebrew works is if you've got a name for something, then the name will have a verb root. And the name given to something will be all about the action which, is, uh, which that word is concerned with. So for karban or offering, it's karav. Okay, so it's all about this action of drawing near. So the noun offering, the name offering, 
that means a thing with which you draw near. You could translate it as a means of drawing near. So that's what this word is all about. So when we think of an offering, what we should really be thinking is a way by which we draw near to the creator. Now, this word karban, we might have heard it before as korban. You see here, it has this vowel pointing like this T-shaped vowel pointing underneath the kof, resh, bait, and then there's another of these little T-shaped vowels. So the vowel here and the vowel here is the same. So this makes an ah sound. So just as it's ban, it's also car. This is actually uh, how Blue Letter Bible used to display uh, this word carban, and this is how they display it now. Exactly the same vowel pointings, but they've recognized that the, uh, the sound is the same. It's actually um, the Greek word which translates this word, which is pronounced korban. So when we hear of things like korban ola and things like that, that those things aren't actually biblical phrases. Um, we will never read about a korban ola or a karban ola or a karban mincha. We never, or mincha, we never read about those things in the Hebrew. If you were talking to a rabbi, maybe, and they were referring to an offering, which was the Ola offering, and I'll explain all these offerings as we go through. They might talk about a Karban Ola, but that's because they're using the Hebrew language to describe the Ola as a Karban. We never actually read of that in Scripture, though. So if we put those words in, Yehovah called, he cried to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to, say to them, when any of you brings, when any of you karavs a, a korban or a karban, okay, so what that's actually saying is when any of you draws near with a means of drawing near, this thing that you're bringing to draw near to the creation, uh, to the creator, when you carve your carbon of the livestock, the herd, or of the flock. So these are the things that the children of Israel at this time would draw near to the Creator with. As I say, we don't have a physical temple, so we're not going to draw near with these things. The means by which we draw near, we'll go into in the second part. In Exodus 3 verse 5, we see this word carav used so we get a, a better sense of what this word means from other places that it's used in scripture because if we just have the english translation bring when you bring an offering we lose all of this so yahovah said do not karav here do not come near do not draw near to here take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is set apart or holy ground. Okay, and so holy means it means that something is set apart for a particular use. So just as in the temple, the physical temple, you have to prepare yourself and you have to draw near in a certain way. Moshe coming near set apart ground like the temple would be, he 
would have to be prepared in a certain way. He would have to take his sandals off his feet. Numbers 151 says, And when the dwelling place is to go forward, so the dwelling place or the tent, the tent of meeting, every time they broke camp, they moved. The tent would be broken down and that would move with them. So that's the event it's talking about here. When the dwelling place is to go forward, the Levites take it down. And when the dwelling place is to be set up, the Levites set it up. And the stranger who comes near is put to death. That word's karev. Just as karban has the verb root of karav, this other verb, karev, has the verb root of karav. It's all about coming near again. So the stranger, the one who is not supposed to be coming and taking the holy objects, if they are to come near, that to try and involve themselves in the moving of the tent, then the, it carries quite a hefty sentence. Not in order to kill people, in order that people know that's not something you do. If something has the death penalty associated with it, it's not something that you're just going to go and do on a whim. You're going to know that that's absolutely um, not something to be done. Genesis 20 verse 4 says, However, Avimelech had not come near her. Okay, so here we see it used in more of a figurative way. Okay, like we might use the uh, euphemism to know somebody to talk about having sex with them. Here, Avimelech had not come near her. So here it's used figuratively as kind of a euphemism. And he said, Yehovah, would you slay a righteous nation also? So we're, we're getting a sense of this word in other contexts. So it's not really bring, you're not bringing an offering, you are, but the action that you're really doing is drawing near with it by implication, bringing it. Leviticus 7, 11 to 13, so this is actually a part of the second Torah portion. This is the Torah of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which is brought to Yehovah again, which is drawn near to Yehovah with. If he draws near with it for a thanksgiving, then he shall draw near with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So it gives it a completely different flavor. You can read it in the English, and this is just one of you know hundreds of English translations. Read it in the English and you can miss this a bit. Besides the cakes, so this is the uh, the material offering, he draws near with his offering of leavened bread together with the sacrifice of the thanksgiving of his peace offering. He shall bring or he shall draw near with one cake from each offering. Okay, so a completely different flavor given to it here. So if now, as we go forward with looking at the sacrifices, we can understand that what's happening is that they're drawing close to the creator with the sacrifices, then um, that will be beneficial for us. The time for Yisrael to die drew near. This is how it's used here. Okay, so it's not the time for Yisrael to die was brought. You know, you, you could translate it like that, but it's something more familiar to us if we say the time drew near uh, for Israel to die. So the word to draw near is karav. And the word for the offering itself is karban. You can see here that they are very similar. 
As I say, these words have a verb root. The verb roots are three letters long. That's, that's the verb itself. And if you see that verb in other words, like nouns and adjectives, words we used to describe, it means that verb is something to do with it. So we've got the letters cough, reish, bait. Here in carban, uh, we have kof, reish, bait also. The letter that's different is this one, which is a noon, an N. So it, it goes from karav um, to karban. So it's exactly the same letters. So we can recognize this, and we'll see this somewhere else when we get into the, the second part. In Mark 7, 9 to 11, it says, And he said to them, Well, do you set aside the command of Elohim in order to guard your tradition? So the things that they were doing were um, against the word. They told the people to do different things to what the word told them to do in order for them to follow their traditions. Very much like what we see in Christianity and Judaism today. For Moshe said, respect your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban. And then we've got that is a gift. So in the Greek, we do have the word korban. We have a Greek word korban. And here we have a word that we'll look at, doron. So what Yeshua is saying is, what they were teaching people is not that somebody who disrespected their father or mother should be put to death which is what the word said. Rather, they were saying, anything that my father and mother would have profited from me is korban. It is an offering to Yehovah, or that is a doron, the, uh, the scribes have added here for us. Doron is a gift or um, a present. Matthew 15 covers the same thing. And says, for God commanded, saying, honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So here it's written uh, differently. Mark 7, he says, Moshe said, and here it's uh, recorded as God commanded, okay, which are actually one and the same thing. God commanded, but ye say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, it is a doron, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. Okay, they are allowed to live. So we've got this idea of these offerings being like gifts that are brought to Yehovah. And indeed, when we will see what's commonly called the grain offering, we will see that they are actually presents. They're all different types of korban or karban, um, but they are doron. They are gifts brought to Yehovah. We see the word korban in an interesting place in Matthew 27. It says, the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, it is not right to put them into the treasury. Treasury? No. By interpretation, maybe treasury. Here, it's the plural. It's korbanan. It's, it's not right to take the silver pieces and add them to uh, what is given to Yehovah, seeing they are the price of blood, okay? So it's not right to do that. It's, it's interesting. We don't know whether or not 
they're taking this idea of it not being right from their own oral traditions or whether or not they're drawing on uh, the Torah, which says, do not bring the gift of a whore or the pay of a dog to the house of Yehovah your Elohim for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to Yehovah your Elohim. So it's not clear whether they're drawing on this, whether they've got their own spin on this, or whether or not it's from the oral law. But we can see they say it's not right since this is the price of blood for it to be an offering before Yehovah. So the five offerings that are covered throughout Scripture, the plural for offerings is karbano. Okay, we will see um, as we go through this what are called irregular plurals in the Hebrew. Usually we'd have im as a plural uh, for masculine words and we'd have ot as a plural for feminine words. So here we've got an irregular plural, it's o instead of ot. The five offerings, the carbano, the five carbono. We've got the burnt offerings, which are called olot. Okay, a singular burnt offering would be called an ola. The plural, and it's a regular plural here, would be olot. So you don't have two words, one for burnt, one for offering. It's just the olot. It's not korbanot, olot. It's just olot. These um, verses that I've put here, I'm not going to read through all of the particulars that are given for each sacrifice but up to Leviticus 6, 7, they will be uh, covering what the people are to bring. And from Leviticus 6, 7 onwards, they will be instructions for the priest on how to bring it. So here, Levit Leviticus 1, 3 to 17 deals with the olot for the people and these verses for the priests bringing it. Now, I've rendered this in English as material offerings. We think of the mincha, that would be the singular. The plural of mincha is minchat. So it's not korbanot minchat, it's just minchat for material offerings. Um, and there will be from Leviticus 2, the entire chapter of Leviticus 2, in fact, and these are the chapters for the, the priests. You'll see why in a minute I've rendered it as material offerings. Often in the English, we have it as grain offerings because they were, um, they comprised grain when the people were to bring them. What they were to ask to bring was grain, but they, what is being asked of them is minchat. And we'll see where this word is used elsewhere in scripture and it's a material offering or a present which is brought to Yehovah. More properly present, but instead of grain offering, it's anything material which you bring to Yehovah. So in Genesis 32, he spent the night there and he took what came to his hand as a mincha for Esau, his brother. So this is Jacob taking a present for Esau. And the word is mincha, and that's what we're asked to bring to Yehovah, or what they were asked to bring to the physical temple was a mincha. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, female donkeys, and 10 foals. So these are very much like the offerings which are brought 
to Yehovah, and yet all of them are described as minchat. All of them are described as the, this material offering that Jacob was bringing to Esau. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Let what you have remain yours. And Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your eyes, then receive my mincha from my hand, because I've seen your panim, your face. These offerings in the text are asked to be brought to the panim of Yehovah, into his presence before his face. So when you read in the English that these things were to be brought before Yehovah, the Hebrew word is the word for face. They're to be brought to his face. So here we have a mincha being brought before a man's face, Esau's face. Because I've seen your face or your presence, like seeing the face or the presence of Elohim, and you were pleased with me. Please take my, my blessing that is brought to you because Elohim has favored me and because I have all I need. So again, all of this is taking of the blessing that Jacob has to bring a mincha to Esau, just as we would with Yehovah. In Genesis 43, verse 11, their father Israel said to them, so this is the sons of Israel, if so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessels and bring a mincha down for the man. This is them bringing it to Joseph. A little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. So all of these things that we were considering as things that were of real value in the world, okay, they were brought to Joseph as a mincha. That's what Israel was saying to them to do. They made the mincha ready for Yosef's coming at noon, for they heard that they were to eat there. And when Yosef came home, they brought the mincha, which was in their hand, into the house, and they bowed before him to the earth. So again, we've got this mincha being offered and the word panim being used for where it is offered before Joseph, in the presence of Joseph before his face. In 1 Kings 4.21, Solomon was ruling over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought minchat and served Shlomo. So again, they were bringing these material things to Solomon. Judges 3, we've got Ehud, one of the judges who's raised up, a, a, a Benjamite. And by him, the children of Yisrael sent a mincha to Aglon, king of Moab, who was oppressing them. Ehud made himself a sword. He hides it under his robe on his right thigh. And he drew near with the mincha to Aglon, king of Moab. It's important here that he's drawing near to him because he's going to take out the sword that he made and stab Aglon with it. First Samuel 10, uh, Shemuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom Yehovah has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, Let the king live. Shemuel declared to the people the rulings of the kingdom and wrote it in a book, placed it in the presence of or before Yehovah, 
Shemuel sent all the people away each to his own house. Shaul went to his own house too. So Shaul is the one that Yehovah chose to be king. He goes to his own house to Givah. And with him went brave men whose hearts Elohim had touched. But the sons of Belial, the sons of worthlessness, said, What does this one save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents. So the one that Yehovah has chosen as king, Yehovah chose him. He said, this is how it's to be. The sons of worthlessness looked at it, lent on their own understanding, and they said, who is this man to us? And they did not bring him any minchat, any uh, material things. So this is very much how um, Yehovah's people are with Yehovah when they despise him. Okay, the word for despise is baza, and it means to lightly esteem something. So Yehovah had made this man king, but the sons of worthlessness didn't esteem that at all. They lightly esteemed it. They said, who's this man to us that Yehovah has chosen him? We're going to go about things and do them as we want to do. So 2 Samuel 8, 2 says, David also smote Moab. We saw that they were a problem for Israel. Measured them off with a line, causing them to lie down on the earth. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death. And with one complete line, those to be kept alive. And the Moabites became David's servants, and they brought him Mincha. So all the way through, we see people being honored by the bringing of Mincha. Just as the Israelites were to honor Yehovah, their king, by bringing him Mincha. The particular mincha that he asked for was grain, which would have been something, again, of real-world value, something that would be the difference between life and death to an agrarian culture. So they were bringing him mincha, often translated as grain offering or meat offering in the King James Version, but material offering would be better. All the earth sought the presence of Shlomo to hear his wisdom, which Elohim had put in his heart. So they're coming before the panim of Shlomo again, Solomon. And they were each bringing his mincha, objects of silver, objects of gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules. Again, things of real value. That's what they were bringing to the presence of Shlomo. So again, we've got this picture of a king being offered uh, mincha, being honored by mincha. Okay, next we have peace offerings, which are dealt with in Leviticus 3. I've put, put Leviticus 7, 11 to 21, um, although the peace offerings are kind of brought up over and over again throughout Torah, just here and there. You'll get a verse here and there about the peace offerings. But so that people can study these offerings, because I'm not going to read through them, um, they're the verses you need. Then we have sin offerings, okay, called chata'at. That's the plural of uh, sin offering, the chata'at. And then we've got guilt offerings. A single guilt offering will be called an asham, okay? It's not korban asham, it's just asham. The plural of that would be ashamam. In Hosea 4, 11, uh, 1 to 11, we read this about priests. I want you to bear this in mind. I'm going to come to an end of this part, 
kept this Torah portion quite short by reading through this and then we'll read through something that Paul says which is reminiscent of what Hosea is speaking of here. Then we'll come to an end and in uh, part two we'll look at priests. But as we come to an end with this, I want you to bear in mind what Hosea says about priests. Hear the word of Yehovah, you children of Israel, for Yehovah has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Okay, they, they took the Torah, they went into the land, and they fell away from Yehovah. They knew what he asked, but they decided not to do it. For there is no truth or kindness or knowledge of Elohim in the land. Swearing and lying, okay, it's not talking about cursing swearing it's talking about swearing to do something and then lying about it or swearing being a lie swearing and lying murdering stealing committing adultery have increased bloodshed follows bloodshed therefore the land mourns and everyone living there languishes with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea are taken away Okay, so these things were a curse upon the land because this is how the people lived. However, let no one strive or reprove another, for your people are like those striving with a priest. And we'll look at this word priest in the second part because it's not really priest as we would think of a priest of the Catholic Church, for example, or something that might be more familiar to us. Your people are like those striving with the priest, which was, of course, forbidden in the Torah. And you shall stumble in the day, and the prophet shall also stumble with you in the night. And I shall make your mother perish. My people have perished for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priest for me. We've seen recently when they came to Mount Sinai, it was offered to all of them, if you obey me, then you're going to become a nation of priests to me. So he says, no, I reject you from being priests for me. Since you have forgotten the Torah of your Elohim, I also forget your children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. My esteem they have changed into shame. They eat the sin of my people and lift up their desire to iniquity. So the priests in giving these offerings to Yehovah, sin offerings when the people sinned, what they would do is they would offer it and they would eat a portion of the offering themselves, okay? It was food for the priests. But as sin increased in the land, the amount of sin offerings, the amount of things that Yehovah was being offered would increase. And thus, the offerings for sin that the priests ate would increase as well. But this is not something that pleases Yehovah. Not while there's an abundance of offerings in the temple, this is brilliant. He says, no, they eat of the sin of my people. The very thing which has caused these offerings to be brought is the fact the people have sinned. So that's not a good thing. To bring offerings is a good thing. For them to be offerings caused by the sin of the people, that's not good. And it shall be like people, like priests. And I shall punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. So when the people are bad, the priests are bad also. And they shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall whore, but not increase. 
for they have stopped obeying Yehovah. So they're going to think that they're going to benefit themselves in all these ways by having sin in their lives. They're going to bring all these things to them. They think that it will profit them, but Yehovah is in control. So he's saying, look, they're going to do all of this sin, but it's not going to profit them in the way that they think it will. Whoring and wine and new wine enslave the heart. And Paul writes um, about something that is similar to this principle of sin offerings increasing because sin has increased. Paul says, and the Torah came in beside so that trespass would increase. But where sin increased, favor or grace, it's the same Greek word, increased still more. So is this a good thing for there to be loads of grace, for Yehovah to be showing loads of grace to people? Think of things like the hyper-grace movement. Is that what Yehovah wants? So that as sin did reign in death, even so, favor or grace might reign through righteousness to everlasting life through uh, Yeshua Messiah, our master. What then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin to let favor increase? Just like the people, they were sinning more so that the sin offerings increase more. Shall we continue in sin to let grace increase? Let it not be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? As we go into the second part and you see what the spiritual offering, which is in the place of the sin offering is, we will see that Yehovah doesn't want that sin offering to increase. He doesn't want just an abundance of offerings to him if they're predicated on the sin of people. Exodus 19, 5 to 6, which of course we've read recently, says, And now, if you diligently obey my voice and shall guard my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession above all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a set-apart nation. Those are the words which you speak to the children of Israel. So Moses speaking to Yehovah, and this is what he says, go back and tell them this. But what we see very soon after this is that he says, okay, I want you to get Aharon, Aaron and his sons, and they're going to be priests. So why do we have a verse that says, I want all of the children of Israel to be a kingdom of priests to me? And this is kind of, I think, a large part of people not being able to work this out so they, they get sucked into the whole Melchizedek thing where it's, well, Jesus is our high priest and we're all priests under Jesus, um, that sort of thinking. But it's actually very easy for us to understand what's happening here. Okay, as we saw with the word karav and the word uh, korban, we see that the noun korban has this verb within it. So the noun is something to do with this verb. So a korban, an offering, is a way by which you draw near. And karav is um, the verb to draw near. And it's very similar with priest. All words in Hebrew will have a verb root. So every word in Hebrew will have an action associated with it. And it's the same with priest. The word priest in English doesn't tell us anything about what a priest does. But the word priest in Hebrew has a verb root and it tells us what action the priest is doing. 
So priest in um, in Hebrew is kohen. Okay, kohen is how you pronounce that. And the verb root for kohen is kahan. Okay, so we've got just different vowels, but it's the same verb root there. So a kohen or a kohen, kahans, that's the verb. So when you say someone is a kohen, what you're saying is that person is a person who kahans. So in order to understand the word kohen, we need to understand the word kahan. So Gesenius says kahan in its pa'al form. You might have heard of the kal form in Hebrew. It's kind of like the basic form of the verb. Well, the kal and the pa'al, if you ever read those two words, they, they mean exactly the same thing. It's your choice which word you would use. So kahan in its pa'al form means to uh, presage, predict, prophesy, and by extension, to undertake anyone's course. So to presage, to uh, predict or prophesy, all has to do with things that are going to happen in the future. Well, by extension, to undertake anyone's cause, to act as a deputy or a delegate with authorization by presenting the words of one of the one whose cause is undertaken. So it's somebody who, with the authorization of a third party, acts on their behalf. Okay, presenting the words of the one whose cause is undertaken. So it's kind of like an envoy, if you like, on this other person's behalf. They're taking the word of this other person and they're presenting it to other people. And that's exactly what the priests in the temple were doing. All of the instructions that we're reading about in these Torah portions tell us what the priests are supposed to do. Yahuwah said, this is my word, this is how offerings are to be made. And then the priests were acting as his representatives, if you like, to uh, bring his words and present them to other people by doing what he'd said to do in the temple. But you can be a Kohen outside of that by any taking anybody's words and presenting them to another person to act as a delegate or a deputy for that person, you will be being a Kohen or a priest on their behalf. So when we think of priest in English, it tells us nothing. When we think of the word priest in Hebrew, it tells us an awful lot about what this person will be doing. So you can have priests in the earthly tabernacle who are representing Yehovah's words to other people in their capacity as people who function in the temple. And you can have a priest who's presenting Yehovah's words to other people in another capacity. So we are all priests of Yehovah, okay? Because we present his word to other people, okay? We're not priests in a temple or in the physical temple on the earth, but we are priests who act as his deputies, his delegates on the earth, who carry out his word and show it to other people. So in that regard, we are priests. But the use of the word priest, because of how we understand it in English, can be confusing for people. So they were called to be a nation of priests, a nation of people, if they obeyed him 
And if they kept this covenant, then they will be a kingdom of priests. All these people who were, by doing his covenant and by doing his word, were representing him to other people. 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a set-apart nation. Okay, so now that we have become a part of Israel, now we are in the position that they were offered. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a set-apart nation, a people for a possession that you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a great description of what it is to kahan on somebody's behalf. Okay, we are to proclaim his praises. Who once were not a people, but now the people of Elohim, who had not obtained compassion, but now obtained compassion. And now we are part of Israel, we are part of the set-apart nation, and we are priests who are to proclaim the praises of Yehovah by doing his word before people. So we have different tabernacles or we have different temples that we can be priests in or that can be priests in. In the earthly tabernacle, the instructions in these Torah portions are how Aaron and his sons were to act as his deputies, as his delegates on the earth and to represent his words to other people. That would happen in the earthly tabernacle and that would be the context of the things that happened there. Yeshua, we know that the earthly tabernacle is a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. So everything that happens in the earthly tabernacle is patterned after what is happening in the heavenly tabernacle. So that's where Yeshua is high priest and he makes offerings just as the priests in the earthly tabernacle do. When he's in heaven, which he is at the moment, he's making offerings in the heavenly tabernacle. We are talked of as a temple of Yehovah, Yeshua being the chief cornerstone of the temple that the branch built. So he is the chief cornerstone, and we are all living stones that are built up into a spiritual house. And that's all of us together as his body. His body, all of us, is a temple. But each of us individually is described in Scripture as a temple of the Ruach. We have his Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Just like his physical manifest presence came down and dwelt in the earthly tabernacle, just like the Father is in the heavenly tabernacle, so Elohim is manifest in the heavenly tabernacle, just like that, his Spirit is in each one of us. So we are a temple. Yeshua offers in the heavenly tabernacle the priests that we were reading about in the Torah portion, offered uh, sacrifices there, and us as a body and as the temple of the Ruach individually, we offer spiritual sacrifices. And the sacrifices that we're learning about that were offered in the earthly tabernacle, they have a correlate in Yeshua's sacrifices, which we will look at in the final part, and they have a correlate in what we can offer and we offer spiritual sacrifices just by following the word. Each of the Israelites would have offered or were supposed to offer 
spiritual sacrifices as well. They would offer physical sacrifices in the temple, but the word calls each one of us to offer spiritual sacrifices in order to do the word. And we'll look at what they are. So all of the Israelites who were in the wilderness, they were all called to offer spiritual sacrifices as well as sacrifices in the earthly temple. And Yeshua ultimately would offer um, his blood a sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle. So the Israelites that were in the wilderness, all three sacrifices pertain to the Israelites in the wilderness. Sometimes I think we can think, well, the Israelites in the wilderness, they offered the physical ones. We don't offer the physical ones, but we offer the spiritual ones. It's not quite right. They offered the physical, they offered the spiritual, and Yeshua would offer for them ultimately in the heavenly tabernacle. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, we read something interesting about the nature of the word and the, its effect upon us. A sacrifice, for want of a better word, okay, a korban, an offering, a means of drawing near would be the better word, I suppose. They all made atonement for the person who was offering them. And what I'm sure Charlie will look at when we get to Achremot, Tor Poshin Achremot in a few weeks, is that atonement offers cleansing. Okay, the physical temple was for the cleansing of the flesh, the heavenly tabernacle was for the cleansing of the conscience, and the spiritual sacrifices that we all offer offer atonement for us, okay, a cleansing for us. Spiritual sacrifices are all done by following the word. So we read, husbands, love your wives as Messiah also did the assembly and gave himself for it in order to set it apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And once we are cleansed by performing these spiritual sacrifices, we make atonement for ourselves in the temple of the, the spirit, which is us individually and as the body, and we are cleansed by the water of the word. By doing the word, we make atonement and we are cleansed. John 15 verse 3, Yeshua speaks of this. He says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So we read of the word cleansing us. A scripture that I've looked at before when I went through this and when I looked at the language that's used, even more clarity came from this. When we read before of us being set apart and cleansed by the water of the word, there's two things there, aren't there? There's being set apart by the word and there's being cleansed by the word. In Mark 7, it says, and he said, what comes out of a man, that profanes a man. Sometimes we read defiled. And if you look on Blue Letter Bible, it will say that this word means to become Levitically unclean. But Blue Letter Bible haven't quite got it right there. What it means is to become profane. You can be set apart, holy, or you can be profane. You can be uh, what Peter described or is translated as Peter saying common or unclean. I've never touched anything common or unclean. They're two different things. Okay, so common or profane as opposed to holy. 
and unclean as opposed to clean are two different things. And what Yeshua is saying here is what comes out of a man profanes him. It doesn't make him unclean, it profanes him. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil reasonings, adulteries, whorings, murders, thefts, greedy desires, wickedness, deceit, indecency, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these wicked matters come from within and they profane somebody. So what we're doing is we're not making ourselves unclean by these things. We are profaning ourselves by doing these things though. We are made holy by the word, but we can profane ourselves by going after all of this nonsense. So the five offerings that we saw, we had the burnt offerings, the material offerings, which came in the form of grain, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. They're what they had to bring. All the priests had to bring, the people had to bring them, the priests had to present them to Yehovah. And as I say, we have a correlate for each one of those things in, our, in what we do spiritually by following the word and Yeshua, um, what he did is described in terms of all these things also. So the spiritual sacrifices that we make, make atonement for us or make us clean as a dwelling place of the Ruach Kodesh, okay, the Holy Spirit. So the Olah, the burnt offering, is um, seen spiritually as submission, okay? In the burnt offering, what they would do is they would take the animal and they would wholly consume it on the altar, and that was a burnt offering. For us, that is seen in the spirit as us submitting ourselves to Yehovah. You don't submit yourself by just taking a little bit of your life and changing that. You take it by entirely being consumed by Yehovah. It's entire submission to him, pictured by the Olah. In Romans 8, 1 to 7, it says, There is then no, now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is what it is to submit. This is what it is to give the spiritual offering, to walk in the spirit, to be entirely consumed and offer yourself entirely to him. So there's no condemnation to those who give themselves entirely and walk according to the Spirit. For the Torah of the Spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has set me free from the Torah of sin and death. Okay, so the Torah can either be to us life or it can be death. Because if we know what the law of God says and we choose to not do it, then it brings death upon us. But if we know what the law of God is and we choose to do it, then that brings blessings and it brings life and it brings good to us. So when we walk in the spirit, the Torah is life and peace. For the Torah being powerless in that it was weak through the flesh. Okay, the Torah doesn't have any power in and of itself to change a person. It's only if you submit to it and you walk in the spirit that it will have that change within you of abundance and life and peace. If you choose not to do it and you choose to walk in the flesh, the Torah is powerless. It can't do anything. 
So to people walking in the flesh, the Torah is powerless. Elohim having his own son in the likeness of flesh of sin and concerning sin, condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteousness of the Torah should be completed in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, and we're baptized into Yeshua's death. We put the body of flesh, the body of sin to death we're raised to the newness of life, and we walk in the Torah, which brings life and it brings peace. So Yeshua died so that the righteousness of the Torah should be completed in us, who don't walk in the flesh anymore, have put the old self to death, but walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the matters of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the matters of the spirit. So if you set your mind on the matters of the flesh, the Torah is powerless. But if you set your mind on the things of the spirit, then the Torah will bring life and it will bring peace to you. But that requires that spiritual sacrifice, that olah offering, that submission to walk in the spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity towards Elohim, for it does not submit itself to the Torah of Elohim, neither indeed is it able. So we walk in the spirit, and that is submission to Elohim, that is the spiritual offering of the Olah to give yourself entirely to walk in the spirit and it to bring life and peace. Leviticus 6, 12 to 13 says, this is an instruction about how they were to offer the burnt offering. So when we understand that this burnt offering pitches us submitting ourselves to Yehovah, then this piece of text takes on an entire um, different meaning. It says the fire on the altar is kept burning on it. It is not put out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and arrange the burnt offering on it. So the fire with which you offer yourself as a burnt offering, that is not to be put out. It's not kind of a, ooh, I'm on fire now, I'm, I'm not on fire now. It's submission, it's an entire uh, offering. And shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire is, kept, is continually kept burning on the altar. It is not put out. And it's the same with us, with our lives before Yehovah, the fire is kept burning continually. The burnt offering is burning before him continually. In Leviticus 7 verse 22, which is from this Torah portion, there's a piece of text that I wanted to explain. And this is something that requires you to have made that olah offering. Okay, it requires you to be submitted to Yehovah. Because things like this, to somebody who is not submitted to Yehovah may seem like, oh, you know what? That just seems like a minor thing. I'll eat whatever I want to eat. Okay, it doesn't matter what I eat. But to someone who is submitted to Yehovah, a piece of text like this contains great truth and they, they run after it um, with hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yehovah spoke to Moshe saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, do not eat any fat of bull or sheep, or goat, and the fat of that which died of itself, and the fat of what is torn, is used for any purpose, but you do not eat it at all, 
And I'll explain what it's talking about by fat. It's not talking about fat in meat. The fat of that which died of itself, so if an animal's just kind of keeled over and died, the fat of that which is torn, if it's been killed by another animal, you can use that fat for any purpose that you want, but you can't eat of that fat. And that fat's of a particular uh, type of fat, as we'll see. For whoever eats the fat of the beast of which men bring us an offering made by fire to Yahovah, so that any animal that's given by offering, it could be cows or whatever animals brought as an offering, even the soul who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Do not eat any blood in any of your dwellings of bird or of beast. Any soul who eats any blood, even that soul shall be cut off, excuse me, from his people. So to us today, this can seem like an instruction that requires a lot of us, but it's not as much as you might think. Okay, but to, in, if you are submitted to Yehovah, if you've given yourself as the burnt offering, then instructions like this just follow as a matter of course. And what does it say? Okay, I'm going to do it. So to get into what fat and blood is, because we have a lot of people uh, who are watching the channel at the moment who are very new to doing all of this, and an instruction like that might be confusing. Even to people who've been doing Torah a long time, it may be confusing. What it's not talking about is the intramuscular fat. Okay, if the muscle is the meat, okay, fat that is in the muscle, that's not the fat that it's talking about. That fat is a part of the muscle. It's a part of the meat of the animal. It's what you would eat. You can't go through and take out every bit of fat that's in a steak, for example. Okay, we think of this fat as the same as the fat that is being spoken of in the scriptures, whereas it's not. Intramuscular fat would be a better way for us to understand it, but we just call it fat that's in meat. All of this fat around the edge, all of that is intramuscular fat. The fat that's being spoken of, and in fact, within the Torah portion, this fat is described in greater detail, is the fat which is around the organs, okay? It's called visceral fat. We do well to call it intramuscular fat and visceral fat. We just call it all fat though. So it's fat that would be on the kidneys or fat that would be on the liver of the animal. We might call it suet, okay? Suet is um, in cows, it's the fat that's around the organs. In pigs, which obviously we wouldn't eat, um, it's called lard, I believe that's right. Lard is the uh, visceral fat in pigs. So that's the fat that it's talking about. It's not talking about stuff that's a part of the meat. Same with blood, okay? Blood that is not to be consumed is blood that flows in your veins, okay? Venous blood. It's not talking about what makes meat red, okay? That's called myoglobin. It's completely different from uh, your venous blood, your actual blood, what the scriptures are describing as blood. So it's not saying never eat a rare steak. You can see from these three different types of meat, fish, chicken, and beef, 
that the amount of myoglobin in each one is different, but even fish have some myoglobin in, but you wouldn't think, oh, I'll have my fish bloody today. It's just myoglobin. You're not having it bloody at all. Red juice in meat is not blood. So when it says don't eat blood, don't eat fat, it's not talking about don't get this piece of meat here and don't eat the fat and don't eat it if it's got any of this myoglobin in. That's a completely inaccurate understanding that we have today because we are completely divorced from um, an understanding of slaughtering animals, um, what it is to you know, butcher an animal. A butcher would know that the, the fat that's around the organs is different to the fat that's in the meat. They've just identified differently. One is meat, one is the fat of the animal. So the, uh, the offering that we looked at before, the mincha, the present, our spiritual correlate of that is using our material goods as Yehovah instructs. This is a great example of what I was talking about when I said the Israelites would have all done the spiritual offerings. When they were bringing their material goods to Yehovah, they were all doing the spiritual offering of the mincha. If Yehovah tells you to feed the poor, if Yehovah tells you to look after the widow or the orphan, if Yehovah tells you to give to the stranger, if he tells you to give to the Levite to bring a tithe, if he tells you to bring the first fruits of all of your increase, all of these things are Yehovah saying, this is how I want you to deal with material goods. A mincha that the Israelites brought was their grain. Okay, the thing which is called the grain offering. So an example of the Israelites bringing a spiritual mincha would be them bringing a physical mincha, them bringing the physical grain. Proverbs 3, 5 to 10 says, Trust in Yehovah with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Know him in all your ways, and he makes all your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yehovah and turn away from evil. It is healing to your navel and moistening to your bones. Okay, so if you do the Olah offering and you fear Yehovah in all your ways, you're completely given to following his word, then it is good to you. Esteem Yehovah with your goods and with the first fruits of all your increase. Then your storehouses shall be filled with plenty. Your vats overflow with new wine. Okay, so it's what I was talking about a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, where Yehovah is the much more powerful partner with us in life. When we have given ourselves as an ola to him, we've surrendered all of these things into his control. And we bring a mincha to him and we esteem him with our goods. Making peace with one another is a spiritual correlate of the shlamim, which is the peace offering. Okay, you could also say paying a vow to somebody. That would be a peace offering, doing what you have vowed because the peace offerings included the vows, bringing vows. But again, it's, it's interpersonal with somebody else. Offering thanksgiving 
to Yehovah is a spiritual correlate of the peace offering because you would bring a peace offering to Yehovah in order to give thanks to him. So what's the spiritual uh, correlate of that that we're given in the word? To offer thanks to Yehovah. In Judges 20 verse 26, it says, all the children of Yisrael, even all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept and sat there before Yehovah. That's that word panim again. They sat in his presence or sat before his face and fasted that day until evening. Okay, so they come up to where Yehovah is in the tabernacle. And they offered burnt offerings, plural of Ola is Olot. So they offered Olot and they offered Shlamim before Yehovah. Again, that word's Panim in his presence because they perceived that Yehovah at this time was displeased with them. So they came and they offered Olot and they offered peace offerings. In 1 Samuel 10 verse 8 in the Septuagint, it says, and thou shalt go down in front of Galgal, and behold, I come down to thee to offer whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the reason that I'm using the Septuagint text is because the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So if we want to relate a word in the Old Testament to the word in the New Testament, what we can do is we can look to the Septuagint to see what Greek word was used, and then we can look for that Greek word in the New Testament to see if we can find anything that matches. So I come down to thee to offer whole burnt offerings and peace offerings. The word there is irenikos. Okay, so peace offerings is irenikos. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 17, they bring the ark of Yehovah, set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle where David pitched for it, and David offered whole burnt offerings before Yehovah, and he offered, again, Irenikos. So when we see Irenikos, it is the word that means peace offerings. That's going to be important because we're going to see it in some other places where maybe we would expect not to see it, which should point us to the fact that the spiritual offering for the peace offering is to make peace with one another. Offering Irenikos is making peace with one another, and we will see that from Scripture. So Irenikos, okay, in the Blue Letter Bible, it says, relating to peace, peaceable, pacific, you know, we would talk about a pacifist. So that's what it means by pacific, not of the ocean. Loving peace, bringing peace with it, peaceful or salutary. So this is the word that's used where peace offerings is written in the Hebrew. Or shlamim. Irene, okay, another word from which we get irenikos. It's a noun and it means a state of national tranquility, it could mean, exemption from rage and the havoc of war, peace between individuals, 
okay? This idea of irene, this peace offering, is inherent within it, the idea of peace between individuals. So when we're talking about bringing a peace offering, being peace between one person and another, it's not just something we're plucking out of the air. It is something that we find um, in Scripture. Deuteronomy 2.26 says, I sent ambassadors from the wilderness of Kadamoth to Sion, king of Esabon. Okay, these are Greek transliterations. Heshbon in the Hebrew. With peaceable words. And the word there is the same word which is used for peace offering. With words of peace offering, if you like. So I, we sent ambassadors to this king who was our enemy with Irenikos, okay, with peace offerings. Genesis 37.4, his brethren, having seen his father loved him more than all his sons, hated him and could not speak anything peaceable to him. But the word there again is Irenikos, okay? If you wanted to phrase it like that, it could be they could not speak peace offerings to him. So if we want to bring spiritual irenikos, this is how we do it with one another. I was peaceable among them, among them that hated peace. So I brought peace offerings among those that hated peace. I brought irenikos among those who hated irene. When I spoke to them, they warred against me without a cause, okay? And people may well be like this with us in our life, but what we do is we bring irenikos. We bring peace offerings, the spiritual peace offering to these people. Okay, the word shalem in Hebrew, the plural being shalemim, shalemim which is peace offerings. Okay, peace offering, requital, sacrifice for alliance or friendship. So it's actually inherent in the Hebrew word from which we get peace offerings that it is a sacrifice for alliance or friendship and you can bring it to another person. Voluntary sacrifice of thanks as well, okay? Because that's what a peace offering uh, could include. Okay, shalom is a word that we might be uh, familiar with. It means peace, soundness, completeness, welfare, to be in a state of shalom. Okay, great shalom have those who love your Torah. But you see here, one of the ways it can be used is peace, friendship, can be used of human relationships. So you can bring a peace offering to Yehovah, as we saw the people bringing a peace offering to Yehovah to establish peace where perhaps they thought that Yehovah was angry with them. They brought a peace offering to them. We can do that one to another also. Okay, the spiritual correlate of the asham offering, asham is a word that just would be translated as guilt, or a person may be guilty, you might read in Torah, but it will just say a person will be asham in Hebrew. It can also mean guilt offering. So it's a word that can mean guilt, a word that can mean guilt offering. Leviticus 5 verse 5, part of the physical offering was, it shall be when he is guilty of one of these, so when he is a sham of one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. 
Okay, so part of bringing the physical offering was confessing that in which you had sinned. Confession of sin, recognizing that something is wrong before Yehovah and not just saying, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it. I'm, you know, I'm just going to do that thing. I'm not really guilty before Yehovah in it. I know his word says not to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm not going to recognize that I'm guilty before him. Okay, that is what is corrected by confession. It is to admit wrongdoing before Yehovah. So every time they were to bring a physical guilt offering, they would make the spiritual offering of confession of sin as well. Deuteronomy 29, 19 to 20 speaks of people who refuse to make this spiritual sacrifice. It says, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he should bless himself in his heart, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to add drunkenness to thirst. Okay, so when somebody hears that not following the word of Elohim brings curses and they say, I've got peace in my heart, even though I've heard the words of that curse. That is them not making that spiritual offering before Yehovah of confessing that in which they are guilty. And they're saying, no, it's fine. I have peace. Even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart and the word says that turns out badly, I'm going to have peace. Yehovah would not forgive him. But rather the displeasure of Yehovah and his jealousy shall burn against that man and every curse that is written in this book shall settle on him and Yehovah shall blot out his name from under the heavens. And in similar way with us, if we will not confess that we are doing wrong before Yehovah, then Yehovah will not forgive us of our sin. We have to confess and um repent of sin to be forgiven of it numbers fifteen thirty to 31 says the soul who does whatever defiantly okay they won't admit their wrong before yahovah they continue defiantly before him whether he is native or a stranger he reviles yahovah and that soul shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of yahovah and that's the word that we saw before, the word bazaar, meaning to lightly esteem. So if you read something in the word, Yehovah says to do something or to not do it, and you decide, mm, I'm not going to confess that I'm wrong before Yehovah in not doing what he said. I'm going to continue to do it defiantly. Then what you're doing is you're lightly esteeming his word. You're saying, oh, it doesn't matter. His word's not that important. So because he's despised the word of Yehovah and has broken his command, that soul shall certainly be cut off and his iniquity is upon him. So Yehovah will not forgive those who do not confess and do not repent of sin. He doesn't expect us to just have an intimate knowledge of everything that is sin and to have corrected it all. But what he does expect is that when we become aware of something, we confess that we are wrong before him and we repent and we start doing what's right. Jeremiah 7.10 says, You came and stood before me in this house, which is called by my name, and said, We have been delivered in order to do 
all these abominations. That's what people do. Delivered, saved, whatever word people want to use. But this is what you see a lot in mainstream Christianity. They will say, we know that the word says not to do these things, but we're saved. We can continue to do all of these things. And this is what Yehovah says. You would do this. You come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, you, Yehovah, has deli have delivered us or saved us so that we can continue in all of this. James 1, 13 to 14 says, let no one say when he is enticed, I am enticed by Elohim. For Elohim is not enticed by evil matters, and he entices no one. What he does is he allows Hasatan to come and to offer us something. That doesn't make us enticed. What makes us enticed by the thing that Hasatan is in trying to entice us with is what's in our hearts, what's within us. That's how we're enticed. Elohim doesn't do it. Just because he's allowing us to be offered something, that doesn't mean that he is tempting us. It means that what's tempting us is the desires within our own hearts. Each one is enticed when he is drawn away rather than drawing near to when he's drawn away by his own desires and trapped. So we've got offering the spiritual sacrifices, submission, doing the word of Elohim, by which we draw close to Elohim, and then we've got going after the desires of our own hearts, which will draw us away from Elohim. James 4, 7 to 10 says, So then, subject yourselves to Elohim. Make that olah offering. Resist the devil, and he shall flee from you. So when you feel that enticement, that desire to do something from within you, if you resist it, you resist the tempter, he will flee from you. If you submit yourself to Elohim and say, oh, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what you offer me, it doesn't matter what I want, what matters is what Elohim wants. Subject yourselves to Elohim, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to Elohim. Don't be drawn away by the tempter. Draw near to Elohim through making that sacrifice, and he shall draw near to you. Okay, like we looked at at the beginning, where it can feel like when you're in a world and you're surrounded by darkness, like God can be far away from you. How do we get close to Yehovah? By submitting to his word. The tempter will come and try to draw us away from that. He doesn't want us to have intimacy with Yehovah, but Yehovah desires intimacy and he's told us how to go about it. And we go about it by making those spiritual sacrifices and drawing near to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's the things that you do. And cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. Make atonement, okay, in the spirit, which is in the heart, the temple of the Ruach. Cleanse your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to de dejection. It's not saying never experience joy. It's saying you who reveled in all of these things, all of these things that which were trying to draw you away from Yehovah, recognize them for what they are and lament and mourn over those things, not, you know, be unhappy all the time. 
Let your joy and your delight in those things that would lead you away from Elohim, let that be turned turn to lament and mourning. Let your laughter about those things be turned to mourning and your joy about those things to dejection. Humble yourselves in the sight of Yehovah and he shall lift you up. Isaiah 59, 1-2 says, Look, the hand of Yehovah has not become too short to save, nor his ear too heavy to hear. Okay, and when we think of Yehovah being distant from us, it's not that he is incapable of drawing near to us. It's just that in order for him to draw near to us, we have to draw near to him. So the hand of Yehovah is not too short to save, but your iniquities have separated you from Elohim, and your sins have hidden his face from you from hearing. So everything that Yehovah is about, he wants you to draw close to him so he can draw close to you. But the tempter will come to try to draw you away from Elohim. And when you are ensnared in that and you go after iniquity and sin, that separates you from Elohim. And your sins, what's within you, hides his face from you, not the other way around. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who hides his transgressions does not prosper. So the spiritual guilt offering is to admit when you are guilty before him. That's the first step that has to take place before you can repent. If you keep saying, oh, it's not a problem, I'm just going to keep, keep on in whatever it is, it's not a problem, you're hiding your transgressions. You will not admit that what you're doing is wrong before Yehovah, and he will not forgive somebody in that state. So he who hides his transgressions does not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them finds compassion. And it is forsaking them, which is the final uh, offering before him. First John 1, 8 to 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are misleading ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is trustworthy and righteous to forgive us the sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So this is written to a load of people to explain their need for Yeshua to them. But the same is true for us. If we're doing something that the word describes as sin and we say, it's not sin. Or it's not a problem. I can still do this and be one of Yehovah's people. What we are doing is we are making him a liar. And his word is not in us. We have not submitted to his word. And the final offering that we can offer in the spirit is the chata'at, sin offerings. Okay, so what do we do when we have sinned? Okay, what offering in the spirit can we bring? And remember... Sin offerings increasing isn't a good thing. The offering that we can bring is we can repent of sin. So first of all, we have to bring the guilt offering. We have to acknowledge that what we are doing is wrong. The next stage is we can repent of it. Remember, he who confesses and forsakes them uh, will be forgiven. So repentance is necessary. That's the final of the spiritual offerings. Uh, in the last part, I want to look at how Scripture 
describes Yeshua as being each one of those offerings that were offered in the earthly tabernacle. If it's offered in the earthly tabernacle, we should expect the scripture tells us that it's offered in the heavenly tabernacle as well. And that's what we'll look at in part three. So we've considered the offerings that were offered physically and how that constituted um, one of the spiritual offerings. The uh, spiritual mincha would have been fulfilled by them bringing all of the offerings. We've considered the spiritual offerings and us offering them um, as the temple of the Ruach. In this part, I want to look at the temple which is pictured by the earthly tabernacle. Okay, of course, the heavenly tabernacle where Yeshua is our high priest. And Yeshua makes um, an offering there. And the offering that was made once for all in the heavenly tabernacle was his blood. So his blood is actually what um, is pictured by all of the physical offerings. In different ways, his blood is pictured by them. And this is actually, actually explained for us in the New Testament writings. It's just because people are so familiar, uh, unfamiliar rather, with Torah, when they read these things, they don't realize what is being said to them is an explanation of how Yeshua fulfills these things in the heavenly tabernacle. So an example, okay, Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, but now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Okay, so all of the offerings were about drawing near. What's offered in the heavenly tabernacle? One of the things is Yeshua's blood. Okay, and we are brought near. We actually draw near to Yehovah by the blood of um, Yeshua. What this is specifically talking about is the house of Israel, who are described as those who were far off being brought near. And what we'll see as we go through this is that Yeshua, as the peace offering, is the offering that brought peace between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so the bringing near specifically that's being spoken of here is the two houses coming together, but we are also brought near, we draw near to Yehovah by the blood of Yeshua. So in Exodus 25, 8 to 9, we read, and they shall make me a set-apart place, a holy place, and I shall dwell in their midst. So this is the earthly tabernacle. He was going to come and dwell in the midst of Israel. According to all that I show you, the pattern of the dwelling place and the pattern of all its furnishings make it exactly so. And the pattern which he showed to Moshe was the heavenly tabernacle. So everything that we see going on in the earthly tabernacle is what is going on in the heavenly tabernacle. It's a physical form of what is happening in the heavenly tabernacle. We see the heavenly tabernacle 
mentioned in Revelation 15 verse 5. It says, after this, I looked and saw the temple of the dwelling place. Now, it's translated dwelling place here. A skene is a tent, okay? The dwelling place of witness or the tent of the witness that we read about. In the heaven was opened. So there's a, a dwelling place of witness in the heaven, heavens after which the one on earth was patterned. And that's where Yeshua serves as high priest and the angels minister as we have seen uh, recently. But if we remember that by all the offerings, they were a means to draw near to Yehovah. So the same is true in the heavenly realm. They were also atonement, which is a form of cleansing. So they are the means by which we are cleansed. Our consciences are cleansed in the heavenly tabernacle. So Hebrews 8, 1 to 6 says, Now the summary of what we are saying is, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the greatness in the heavens and who serves in the set-apart place and of the true tent, which Yehovah set up and not man. Okay, so the one after which, uh, the one that was built by man was patterned. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was also necessary for this one to have somewhat to offer. So all high priests make these offerings, so it was necessary for Yeshua to have something to offer. If indeed he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the Torah. We saw what a priest is, somebody who's representing Yehovah's words in the earthly tabernacle. If Yeshua was here on the earth, he wouldn't be representing Yehovah's word by being a priest because Yehovah's word says that you have to be one of the sons of Aaron. So he is priest, but in a different place. Who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly. That's what the priests on earth do. As Moshe was warned when he was about to make the tent, for he said, see that you make all according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained the more excellent service. This is Yeshua. He's obtained the more excellent service than the service that happened physically on the earth. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was constituted on better promises that the people came in repentance, that their consciences would be cleansed by Yeshua serving as high priest, and that they would actually do what the uh, Israelites agreed to do, that they would obey him and they would keep his covenant. Hebrews eight twenty three to 24 says, it was necessary then that the copies of the heavenly ones should be cleansed with these. So the copies, the ones on the earth, they had to be cleansed with the blood of animals. Okay, blood had to be shed for atonement to be made, which brought this cleansing. But the heavenly ones themselves were better sacrifices. So what's in the heavens had to be cleansed also with better sacrifices than the animals that were on the earth. For Messiah has not entered into a set-apart place made by hand, which were figures or pictures of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of Elohim on our 
behalf. So what was offered for cleansing in the heavenly realm was better sacrifices than the ones on the earth, i.e. Yeshua's blood. Revelation 6, 9 to 10 says, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those having been slain for the word of Elohim and for the witness which they held. We heard about those people a couple of weeks ago. Those who are killed for the word and for their witness, they're the ones who will not take the mark of the beast. And under the altar, we see their souls. They cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O master, set apart and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one a, ro a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who would be killed as they were was completed. So those who will not take the mark of the beast or the number of his name. And we see that their souls are under the altar. So what we have is pictured on earth the same sort of thing that's happening. The altar, what would be under the altar on earth, we will see. In heaven, we have souls under the altar. So what happens on the earth should in some way correlate to their souls being under the altar. In Leviticus 4 verse 7, it says, The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before Yehovah, which is in the tent of meeting, and shall pour all the blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. So there were two altars. There's the altar of incense, and there was the altar um, of burnt offering, the brazen altar, which was um, where the burnt offerings were burnt. Here, the blood is poured at the base of the altar. Okay, that's where the souls are in heaven. So on earth, you've got blood at the base of the altar. In heaven, you've got souls at the base of the altar. Leviticus explains to us why. It says the soul of the flesh is in the blood. Okay, that's what it literally says in Hebrew. Of course, the translators try to help and come in and change what's actually said. But it literally says, the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you at the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Which is interesting, because these people who are at the base of the altar in heaven are those who have given their lives, those who have had their heads lifted up as we looked at. Okay, those who did not go free as sons, but those who had their heads lifted up. What was the head tax for? It was to make atonement for the soul. So these people, we're told here, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So they're having their heads lifted up does in fact make atonement for their soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no soul among you eats blood, nor does any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And any man from the children of Israel or from the strangers who sojourn among you who hunts and catches any beast or bird which is eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. So just when you're out in the wild, not when you're in the temple, 
But when you kill an animal that can be offered to Yehovah, you pour out its blood and you cover it with dust, just as was done in the temple. For it is the soul of all flesh, its blood is for its soul. Again, what it literally says, you might not find that in um, certain translations. They don't understand the theology behind it. And I said to the children of Israel, do not eat the blood of any flesh, for the soul of all flesh is its blood. So this is what the blood is for. It's for the soul. We have blood making atonement for the soul. What we have with Yeshua, Yeshua was killed on the earth, but his blood is offered and presented in heaven. Just as we have these people who have their heads lifted up, who give their lives, atonement is made for their soul, and we find their souls under the altar in heaven. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 says, but Messiah, having become a high priest of the coming good matters, through the greater and more perfect dwelling place, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And when it says not of this creation, it doesn't mean that heaven isn't part of the creation. The creation that it's talking about is actually defined, the context of what it's saying. You won't actually find of this creation in many translations either. It's talking about the, um, the set-apart place. So the one in heaven is not of the set-apart place on the earth is basically what it's saying. It's not saying that heaven isn't part of the creation as a whole. Entered into the most set-apart place once for all, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, having obtained everlasting redemption. So he was slain on the earth, but his blood is offered in the heavenly tabernacle. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the defiled, sets apart for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the everlasting spirit offered himself unblemished to Elohim, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living Elohim. Okay, so here on earth, the blood of bulls and goats was for setting apart and for the cleansing of the flesh, to make holy and for the cleansing of the flesh. The blood of Messiah sets us apart and also makes our conscience cleansed. So on the earth, your flesh is made clean. In heaven, your conscience is made clean. And offering a spiritual sacrifice will cleanse you by the washing of water by the word. First John 2, 1-2 says, My little children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an intercessor with the Father, Yeshua Messiah, a righteous one. And he himself is an atoning offering for our sins. Okay, so atonement is all about being made clean. Yeshua is an atoning offering for our sins, not, only, not for ours only, but also for all the world. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved Elohim, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning offering for our sins. So this is what Yeshua was. Okay, he gave himself as an atoning offering, and Yehovah, the Father, sent him to be an atoning offering. In Romans 3, 23 to 26, we read, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the esteem of Elohim, being declared right, that is to be justified, even though we have all sinned, we can be declared right before Elohim by faith, those with faith, those who follow the word, those who submit themselves to Yehovah can be declared right, can be justified before him, even though they've sinned in their lives. Being declared right without paying by his favor, same word, grace, through the redemption, which is in Messiah Yeshua, whom Elohim set forth as an atonement through belief in his blood. So again, it's Yeshua is an atoning offering. It's his blood which is offered in the heavenly tabernacle which makes atonement for us to demonstrate his righteousness because in his tolerance, Elohim had passed over the sins that had taken place before to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he is righteous and he declares righteous the one who has belief in Yeshua. You see, the New Testament is full of references to the Torah. But when we read English translations, because the translators don't have Torah as their doctrine, we get all sorts of crazy translations, and we can just read over passages like this, and we can just think, well, can kind of understand what it's saying there, but we don't understand fully what it's saying, what it's explaining to us in terms of Yeshua being offered in the uh, heavenly tabernacle as blood. I've shown this image before, but it's a, it's a good one to get the message across, okay? Chinese has uh, a peculiarity about it in that there is a lot of things that are written in the Bible that are reflected in how the Chinese write their language. Things to do with um, the flood and Noah, the words for boat and the showing the eight, eight occupants in the boat and all sorts of stuff. But the character for righteousness is actually the character for I or me covered by the lamb. That's what the word atonement could translate as, a covering, okay? We are covered in cleanliness, if you like. So I or me covered by the lamb is righteousness and he has set Yeshua as an atoning offering to cover us so that we who have sinned can be declared right before Elohim we could be declared righteous so the five offerings we looked at again burnt offerings we see Yeshua uh, in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Okay, this isn't Yeshua being a burnt offering. This is Yeshua showing us how to give the spiritual offering, which is the burnt offering. If you remember, our spiritual offering is to submit ourselves before Yehovah. It's full submission to him, giving ourselves fully as an offering before Yehovah. And Yeshua shows us how to do it. This is possibly the best example that we have in all of scripture of how to give the spiritual burnt offering saying father if you be willing remove this cup from me yet not my will but yours be done that's what we say in every instance where we want to do something different but what scripture tells us to do is to submit ourselves to Elohim to resist the devil 
and he will flee from us. So we can say this when we give that spiritual offering, not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews 14, 4 verse 15, rather, it says, For we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tried in all respects as we are apart from sin. Because what did he do? He gave that spiritual burnt offering. Okay, so we have him serving as a high priest, offering his blood, which was a result of him offering the spiritual burnt offering. And he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, he can say, I know that it's tough. I know that this trial is tough. But he gave us the example of what we're to do in that instance. Submit yourself to Elohim, resist the devil, and he will flee. He was tried right like we were, but he was without sin. In Philippians 2, 5 to 8, we read this about Yeshua offering that spiritual burnt offering. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who being in the form of Elohim, thought it not robbery to be equal to Elohim, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and came to be in the likeness of, of men. So Yeshua was in the form of Elohim, and he thought it not robbery to be equal to Elohim, but he emptied himself, okay? He offered that spiritual burnt offering, and he took the form of a servant, and he came to be in the likeness of a man for a very specific purpose, because he wasn't just submitting himself in living the Torah. He was going to submit himself. Having been found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even of the cross. So he didn't just offer the spiritual burnt offering in the way that we might going about our lives, keeping the Torah. He was obedient to the point of giving his life on the cross. Now, with this scripture on the screen, I want to draw your attention to something that's important. Okay, in these uh, English Hebrew editions, I get asked a lot, what translation do you use? And the answer is, I use as a base, te a base text the uh, ISR version, the Institute of Scriptural Research, which has the same text in it as the Hallelujah Scriptures, okay? But it's important for us to bear in mind that though there is no one perfect translation. As we've seen, the translation is based on a translator's doctrine. And by applying the wrong doctrine, they can apply thing, they can translate things incorrectly. So I'll show you what the ISR version um, renders this as. I use it and then I change it. So you can see in the version that I had on the screen, who being in the form of Elohim thought it not robbery to be equal with Elohim, which is quite a statement. But because the translators of the Hallelujah Scriptures and the ISR Scriptures have a certain uh, doctrine as pertains to uh, Yeshua, they haven't translated it like this. And you will find this in many modern translations. The actual base Greek text was a later text which um, came about by the writing of uh, people who, by all accounts, were actually occultists. So in your 
uh, NIV translation, for example, you will find the same sort of thing. Who being in the form of Elohim thought it not robbery to be equal to Elohim in the ISR version is who being in the form of Elohim did not regard equality with Elohim a matter to be grasped. You could kind of get that from the Greek text. And you can kind of twist it round and have it in that way if you wanted to. But what these later translations do is they take away from the deity of Yeshua and in many cases the seriousness of sin. I've highlighted here, uh, it says Yahushua. That's what that Hebrew word says. And in this version, I didn't change it. There's been a couple of them that I haven't changed. They must have been late editions. But usually, I will change it to say Yeshua, which means he will save. And we're told, you'll call his name, he will save, because he will save his people. His name is Yeshua. His name is not Yahushua. So that's another thing that I change with the ISR or Hallelujah Scriptures. Here, we see another thing, the death even of a stake. And I've been through this before, the confusion that people have, because this word in Greek later came to mean stake instead of cross. Um, so they changed cross for stake. And there's many other such things, like they have being instead of soul and all sorts of nonsense, things that don't read properly to somebody who's used to reading um, different Bibles. When they read of the stake, they're going to just think, well, what are you talking about? He died on a stake. He died on a cross. We've always known this. And he did, in fact, die on a cross. So the ISR, the Hallelujah Scriptures, is the basic answer to that question. And I have a copy of the Hallelujah Scriptures, which was given to me by a friend, which is uh, dear to me, is precious to me. But we should bear in mind that no, um, no translation is perfect. I was asked about this this week, and the answer I gave was, if I was only going to choose one translation, it would be the King James translation with a concordance, because that's about as good as I think you can get. But all these modern translations have these errors in them. All translations, King James Version, everyone, all the one with the Hebrew names in, everything. They all have errors in. In John 20, verse 17, it says, Yeshua said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. Okay, so this is after Yeshua was killed on the earth. He was to ascend to his Father to offer his blood in the heavenly tabernacle. So here we see that Yeshua is to ascend to his father. Now this isn't, when it says ascended here, in the Septuagint where you read of an ascending offering, you don't read the same Greek word. That's because in the Septuagint, they've translated it like we do in English. We translate it burnt offering. So when they've translated it into Greek, they've translated it as burnt offering in Greek. Whereas in the Hebrew, it is an ascending offering. That's what olah means. It means to ascend. So we do see Yeshua as an ascending offering 
in the New Testament, but you won't find the word for ascending offering used in the Septuagint because they were just translating into Greek. Uh, the material offering, okay, so how was Yeshua a material offering? Does the New Testament explain to us that he was? Well, Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Messiah also has loved us and gave himself for us, which is all talking about giving offerings, a gift, a prosphora, okay, and a mincha, if we remember, is a gift. So here we have the Greek word for gift, a gift, and an offering to Elohim for a sweet-smelling fragrance, a euodia, which ties it exactly to that gift being a mincha. In Leviticus 2 verse 9, it says, The priest shall take from the grain offering, from the mincha, a remembrance portion, he'll burn it on the altar, an offering made by fire, which is a sweet fragrance to Yehovah. So when we read of Yeshua being a sweet fragrance and being a gift, a present, a mincha, it ties it to this. See, we can just, again, in our English translations, we read through these things and they can just pass by. They go right over our heads. That's where people go wrong when they're understanding Paul. They're reading it from a position of being ignorant of the scriptures, not reading it and knowing that it's talking about the Torah, that Paul is directly talking about Yeshua being a mincha, a sweet-smelling fragrance. He's tying it into the Torah. In the Septuagint, we read that uh, word, a smell of a sweet savior, savor as euodia. Here, the same word is used. Okay, the sweet, sweet savor is the euodia, is what Yeshua is described as by Paul in the exact same words. Peace offerings. Okay, so Yeshua being a peace offering, and there are multiple types of peace offering. Okay, we looked at the word shalem before. Peace offering, requital, sacrifice for alliance or friendship, a voluntary sacrifice of thanks. Here the word shalom, a related word to shalom and shalem, they're all to do with peace, like irenikos and irene, okay, to be in a covenant of peace, to be at peace, um, a peaceful one, one in a covenant of peace, etc. These words are all used in the Hebrew, of peace offerings. Leviticus 7, 11 to 12 says, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, the Zavach Hashlamim, which is brought to Yehovah, or you draw near with the Yehovah, as it actually says. If he draws near with it for a thanksgiving, then he shall bring with it the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving is a voluntary offering. With Yeshua, he gave his life, which again, as we saw, is talk of offerings. He gave his life, and it was a voluntary offering. We read this in the New Testament. Because of this, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to receive it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. So Yeshua's offering, which was a peace offering amongst others, 
was a voluntary offering. Nobody came and killed Yeshua and nailed him to a cross. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He told Judas in that moment, go and do what you're going to do. It was all voluntary, and he accepted it on himself. Again, the spiritual offering, that offering. Shalom here, we saw before, speaks of completeness, welfare, peace. We saw it also speaks of peace, friendship. It's of it's peace of human relationships as well, which is um, relevant when we consider what Yeshua's peace offering is described to have done. Ephesians 2, 13 to 17 says, But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. So that offering, that atoning offering, has brought the house of Israel near. For he is our peace, our Irene. Okay, he is our peace offering. Who, is, who has made both one and has broken down the partition of the barrier, having abolished in his flesh, when we see that word flesh, it's uh, often, if not always, talking about his body, us as his body, him being the head, his flesh being his body, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the enmity which was between Judah and the house of Israel. He was a peace offering which brought peace between those who were near the house of Judah and those who were far off, the house of Israel. The Torah of the commands in dogma so as to create in himself one new man, okay, a new body, his body, from the two, the house of Israel and the house of Judah being made into his body, his flesh, uh, thus making peace, okay? And to completely reconcile both of them unto Elohim in one body through the cross, having destroyed the enmity by it. So here's this peace offering, which brings peace between the two houses. And we'll see this word, apokatalasso. This talks of the reconciling of two things which were separate. Apo meaning things that are separate, and katalasso meaning a reconciliation of those things. So when we read completely reconcile, we don't really get um, what's actually happening here. It's this reconciling of these two things which were separate. We'll get some of that from the other context, but it's talking about a peace offering because this is what the peace offering did between us and Yehovah. It katalassoed us and Yehovah. It reconciled us. Having come near, come near again, he brought his good news, peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. So those who are near the house of Judah, those who are far off, were the um, house of Israel. He's brought peace to the two of them. He is the peace offering. And one of the functions of what Yeshua's peace offering did was to bring peace between the two houses. Here's apokatalasso, to reconcile completely, to reconcile back again, bring back a former state of harmony, which the two houses were in. And you can see here it's made from the word apo and the word katalasso. As I say, the word apo means things that are separate. Katalasso means uh, here, return to favor with 
be reconciled to one, to receive one into favor. Okay, so this is what happened between the two houses. Yeshua's sacrifice not only allowed peace between the two houses to be established again, but also peace between us and Yehovah. Scripture describes us as being reconciled to Yehovah by Yeshua's blood. So he is a peace offering between us and Yehovah. Colossians 1, 17 to 23 says, He is before all, and in him all hold together. He is the head of the body, which is his socks, his flesh, the assembly, that's us, that's who his body is, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one to raise back to life as we will, that he might become the one who is first in all. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, all shalom, all completeness, all fullness. Through him to completely reconcile, apokatalasso, all unto himself. So Yeshua is offering not only apokatalassoed the house of Israel to the house of Judah, it also did that between us and Yehovah because our sin had caused a separation between us. But Yeshua is the peace offering caused this reconciliation whether on earth or in the heavens, having made peace, having offered this peace offering through the blood of his cross. Again, it's his blood which is offered in the heavenly tabernacle. It's his blood which also is the peace offering. You who were once estranged and enemies in the mind by wicked works. Again, it brings this reconciliation between en enemies. It killed the en enmity between Israel and Judah, but now he has completely reconciled. So we were estranged from Yehovah, which we saw comes as a result of sin, enemies against Yehovah, but now him being a peace offering has completely reconciled us to Yehovah. In the body of his flesh, same word again, through death to present you set apart and blameless Amamos, which is what all offerings must be, and unreprovable before him. So again, it's about his body, which we are. If indeed you continue in the belief, founded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the expectation of the good news. Again, it's the enemy, the tempter who comes to try to draw us away from that good news instead of us drawing close to Yehovah which you heard, which was proclaimed to every creature under the heaven, of which I, Shaul, became a servant. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11, we see this word meaning to be reconciled, and we see, if she is indeed separated, let her remain unmarried or be catalassoed with her husband. Let her be reconciled. So this is talking about people on the earth, but it gives us the same thing idea of us being catalassoed with our husband, Yehovah. Romans 4, 20 uh, to 5, 11 says, he did not hesitate about the promise of Elohim through unbelief, but was strengthened in belief, giving esteem to Elohim. So this is speaking of Abraham. Being completely persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to do. 
Therefore, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. This is what it is for us to be justified before Elohim. We've not been righteous, but we can be reckoned as righteous because of our faith, which causes us to offer the guilt offering, to offer the sin offering, and to be reconciled through Yeshua's offering. And not because of him alone was it written that it was reckoned to him, but also because of us, to whom it shall be reckoned, to us who believe in him who raised up Yeshua, our master, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our trespasses and was raised for us to be declared right. So again, Yeshua's death allows us to be declared right. Therefore, having been declared right by belief, we have peace with Elohim through our master, Yeshua Messiah. He is the peace offering which allows us to be reconciled to be catalassoed with Elohim, through whom, we, uh, uh, who, through whom also we have access by belief into this favor in which we stand, and we exult in the expectation of the esteem of Elohim. Not only this, but we exult in pressures, knowing that pressure works endurance. Endurance, approvedness, approvedness, expectation. And expectation does not disappoint because the, the love of Elohim has been poured out in our hearts by the set-apart spirit which was given to us, which we saw before with the spiritual offerings. For when we were still weak, Messiah in due time died for the wicked, okay, while we were still sinners. For one shall hardly die for a righteous one, though possibly for a good one, someone would have the courage to die. But Elohim proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. He died for us to be the peace offering between us and Elohim so that we, in our sin, having separated ourselves from Elohim, could be reconciled to Elohim. Much more than having now been declared right by his blood, again, it's his blood which is that offering, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if being enemies, again, the enmity, we have been reconciled with Elohim through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall also be saved by his life. Now that we've been reconciled with Elohim through his blood, through the life that he lived, through us living that, we will be saved. Not only this, but we also exult in Elohim, our master, Yeshua Messiah, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Again, to people who are ignorant of the Torah, this would all just sound like quite flowery words by Paul. And you kind of be like, I kind of get what you're saying, but not really. But when you understand the Torah, you understand the sacrifices, you see exactly how Yeshua was that sacrifice which brought peace. Okay, the word katalage, Okay, we saw it here, the reconciliation. We also see that between uh, Israel and Judah. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Let it not be, but by their fall, deliverance has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. If their fall is riches for the world, this is talking about the house of Israel, they fell and were scattered amongst the Gentiles. Their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their completeness. 
For I speak to you, the Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I esteem my service. If somehow I might provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their casting away is the reconciliation of the world, what is their acceptance but life from the dead? So this reconciliation which takes place, it happens between Yehovah and us, but Yeshua Offering his blood also brought reconciliation between the two uh, houses. Okay, sin offering. Does the scripture say that Yeshua was a sin offering? This one's quite easy. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Messiah, he's a new creature. The old matters have passed away. See, all matters have become new. And all matters are from Elohim, who has reconciled us with himself, through Yeshua, Messiah, and has given us the ministering of reconciliation. Okay, we take this word of reconciliation to others. That is, that Elohim was in Messiah, reconciling the world unto himself, not reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are envoys on behalf of Messiah. It's part of what being a priest is, being an envoy. As though Elohim were pleading through us, we beg on behalf of Messiah, be reconciled with Elohim. Allow Yeshua's peace offering to reconcile you with Elohim. So we have speak of the peace offering. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Elohim. And if you've ever read that before, you might well have thought, what do you mean he made him to be sin for us? How did he become sin? Sin's a concept. Sin is breaking the Torah. How did Yeshua become transgression of the Torah? That's not what it says. It's another offering which is referred to here. Okay, we see in Hebrew, the word that we saw for chata'at, sin offering, can also mean sin. Or sinful, just like guilt offering can also mean guilt. So sin offering can mean sin, can also mean sin offering. The same is true in Hebrew. Where that Hebrew word is used in the Septuagint, you get this word, G266, amartia, okay, which means sin. Here we see, for he has made him to be what? He's made him to be... G266, Hamartia, Amartia. So he has made him to be a sin offering for us would be a better rendering of that. It can mean sin, but if you understand the Torah, you would translate it differently. Again, doctrine heavenly, heavily influences translation. So the final offering is the guilt offering. And how Yeshua was a guilt offering is even simpler. It's told to us in those very simple terms in Isaiah 53. But Yehovah was pleased to crush him. He laid sickness on him that when he made himself an offering for guilt, and that word is a sham. Sometimes just translated guilt offering. That's what it means. He made himself an offering for guilt. So that is perhaps the most plain that we're told in all of scripture. So Yeshua's sacrifice, he died on the earth, 
He ascended to heaven and he offered his blood in the heavenly tabernacle. And his blood being offered fulfilled every one of those sacrifices in the, the heavenly temple. He made each one of those sacrifices and presented them in the heavenly tabernacle by presenting his blood. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that you've given us a way to become clean. Thank you that you you didn't just leave us um, in that state and that you you took pity on us and you remembered that we were just dust and you you came to earth as a man and you you suffered that horrendous death in order to make atonement for us so that we could be reconciled to you. I'm so grateful that you did that, Father. It's, um, it's mind-blowing. Thank you that you have given us a way to make ourselves spiritually clean before you. Thank you for your word and for all of the depth that's in your word and that by doing it, we're priests to you and we represent you to the world and that all of it just comes together in the most amazing way. And it enables us to be clean and to have uh, life and abundance. Thank you for who you are, Father. Thank you that you are the Elohim that we serve. Amen.